Welcome back to the Synergist Podcast, the most man-centered theology podcast on the internet by God's providence. I'm Thomas Horrocks. And I'm Nick Quint, and we are back, baby. How you been? We're a bit of a MIA a AFK for a while, so uh, where were you this whole time? Well, that's a great question. Um, so I've announced on social media, but our listeners may not know, I've actually been uh, away from home for the last year and out of the country for the last nine months on deployment as a chaplain for the Army National Guard. Uh, so last September, I left home and began training for a couple of months. And then last December, we went over to the Middle East, uh, where I was up until a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so that's why we have um, mostly been MIA. We recorded one episode while I was over there, but um, syncing up the time schedule uh, with uh, your new baby and my mm-hmm. poor internet connection and all of the things that have been happening in the world made it sort of difficult. Um, but I'm back in the States now, and uh, your baby's a little older, and things seem to be calming down at least a little bit. So yep. we are back. Yep. Yeah, this this baby, uh, the joke, the running joke between my wife and I is the baby is alive as long as the COVID shutdown has been going on. It's, it's almost <laughs> perfect. Uh, the, the, the day after, actually technically the day he was born, I think, because he was born at four in the morning is he is when this is the day uh, our governor governor newsom back in i want to say oh gosh uh time is irrelevant now we're in a, in a time loop uh it was march march 14th is when the the initial shutdown commenced and that's literally when he came into the world nolan <laughs> our son and then what happened after that which had he been born a day or two after that the governor i think rightly uh instituted a one parent or one person uh or even, I, I think they even restricted that at the very beginning. Uh, if you could, if uh, your spouse couldn't be in the uh, room with you, oh because, my goodness, you know, because of COVID, they just they didn't know quite what they they knew what they were dealing with, but they didn't know how bad th- what they were dealing with could be. And so I would have probably been stuck in some sort of room for ten hours, you know, just waiting for my wife to give birth and just hoping and praying. But thankfully. Uh, in God's providence, uh, I ended up in there the day before with her, and yeah, That's that was a, that was a um, a Hades of an experience. But uh, I'm glad we're we're through it. Very happy, of course. Now he's um, not sleeping much and teething and eating <laughs> solid foods, and then uh, pooping and doing all the stuff that babies do. But it's it's a wonderful time. And with babies not sleeping much, that means that uh, mom and dad probably aren't sleeping very much either, right? I, I don't know what sleep is anymore. <laughs> so if there are any, uh, if this episode doesn't make any sense, or if Nick has any major gaffes, then we're just going to attribute that to the the lack of baby sleep. I, I think that's the best excuse I can offer. <laughs> we actually recorded this episode, um, and then we had some issues with the, the audio, and so we're just uh, redoing it all over again, but... Um, as a reminder, in our last episode, we introduced a brand new topic. We started talking about um, the topic of the atonement, uh, which has become sort of theological shorthand for the meaning of the death of Jesus. What does it mean? Uh, what did Jesus' death accomplish? What does it mean theologically for us? All of that is sort of wrapped up in the single term, uh, the atonement. Uh, and so as a way of helping us frame the topic uh, in the last episode, which was a long time ago, uh, we introduced uh, Gustav Aulin's three paradigms, the way he sort of organizes it. Um, and so he organizes the what we call atonement theories, the various atonement theories, into the classic view, the objective view, and the uh, subjective view. Uh, And most individual theories can be sorted into one of these major subgroups. Um, 
And as we talked about in the last episode, each one of these major subgroups is sort of distinguished by the direction of the atonement and the fundamental problems that the theory within the subgroup is addressing. Right. And, and within the, uh, the classical model, or at least kind of, we almost might say the patristic model, the early church fathers and mothers, we have the Christus Victor model, the ransom theory, and the recapitulation theory within that same model. And within the objective paradigm, we have the well-known and probably, I would say, most widely held view, at least within Protestantism, or we, we maybe even might distinguish that between American evangelical Protestantism, mm-hmm. um, although I, I wouldn't be, I mean, I'm certain mainliners hold it, and, uh, you know, Pentecostals hold it. So it's, it's probably the, mo- the at least most widely held view, at least in that sense, although it's not held, I think, by the Roman Catholic Church, or at least the way evangelicalism kind of formulates it, I don't think Roman Catholics are too keen on, right. uh, and perhaps rightly so. But uh, and that view is called penal substitutionary atonement, or PSA for shorthand. Uh, a quick overview is that famous hymn. Uh, oh, what is it? The Christ. Um, oh, and on the cross, and on Jesus the cross, died, the wrath Jesus of God died, was satisfied. The, the wrath of God. The wrath of God was satisfied, and so the emphasis is on the uh, the, the the second half of that uh, clause. And, and a related but distinct view, uh, which is probably a little older, you can find it in around uh, this time of St. Anselm, is called this, the satisfaction view. And so those two views, while they are often collapsed uh, into one another, they, they, are, they do have some distinctive emphases that kind of make that point. And finally, uh, and the one that gets kind of, that, that's at least bigger in the uh, more Anabaptist tradition, and perhaps even within uh, the Eastern Orthodox uh, tradition, is the subjective paradigm as opposed to objective and classical. And this includes views about healing and moral influence. You might include uh, participationist elements of it as well. And so just by way of recap, although we want to encourage you to listen to the previous episode if you want more detail, but this will give us kind of a helpful paradigm uh I would say pun intended, but that's not a pun. <laughs> <laughs> and then the next, in the next series of episodes, we're going to be looking more closely at each of these paradigms and the theories within them, and most importantly, the uh, the scripture involved in the in their construction. Right. Uh, and so, as we do this, as we're looking into these various atonement theories and asking, you know, what does the jet, what does the death of Jesus mean? Um, we're going to be asking several important questions about each. Uh, subgroup and about each theory in particular. Um, And so the first question we're going to ask is, how well supported is this particular atonement theory in the text of the New Testament? Um, And then we'll we'll exegete the passages that are most commonly used in support of uh, each paradigm and each theory, and see if those passages really say what they're said to say in regard to the meaning of the death of Jesus. Yeah, and, and the second question we'll ask is, is how well does this paradigm fit within the overall message and ministry of, of Jesus? How well does this paradigm fit within what Jesus revealed to us through his life and ministry, and I would argue most importantly, his resurrection? And if we really do believe that Jesus is the clearest and most complete revelation of the nature and character of the loving God we worship, uh, the, the meaning and purpose of this death should be consistent with the portrait of God we see in Jesus' life and teaching. God and Jesus need to be seen in harmony and in mutuality in that sense. We can't just go, well, God is me and Jesus isn't. That just, I don't think that will, that, that'll be satisfactory for us. And so we need to see how the life and ministry of Jesus reveals who God truly is. So there's no mask behind. Uh, Jesus isn't a mask the Father wears, if for lack of a better word. That's a good way to put it. Uh, and so the third question we're going to ask then is how well does this uh, does each particular paradigm fit with the grand narrative of the entire Bible? Uh, if 
Scripture is the story of God's interactions with God's people throughout history, and I think we both believe that it is. Mm-hmm. Um, then we should expect that the atonement uh, and its meaning, the meaning of Jesus' death, would be consistent with the overall narrative. In other words, we, we shouldn't see uh, a theory of the atonement that uh, is drastically different from the overall narrative of, of the Bible, God's interactions with God's people. The, the meaning of Jesus' death um, needs to be consistent and fit within that overall uh, picture. Exactly. And, and, and maybe most importantly, the, the final question, or at least kind of idea we want to have present, because uh, you and I are both pastors, we're both involved in ministry. Uh, we want to ask, what are the theological, pastoral, and practical implications of each theory? How, boots on the ground, right? What does this actually mean for our daily lives and how we pray, how we worship, how we pay our taxes, how we love our neighbors, and so on and so forth? Um, as you and I both know, and you and I both stress this uh, all, all the time, Christian doctrine and Christian theology doesn't exist in a vacuum independent of other doctrines or ideas. And our theology always has practical implications, whether we realize it or not. Um, and we won't be able to cover this exhaustively for every theory, but at least it'll kind of give us a, te- a teleological mindset of what is the goal of this? What is the outcome of this? And how can we get there in the best way possible? Very good. Uh, so with that in mind, let's get started. Uh in this episode in particular, we're going to begin a deep dive into this classic paradigm, or as it's been called by um, Gustav Auland, the, the Christus Victor paradigm. And, and just to be clear, you're saying begin, because for, <laughs> for those who are, are big Bible nerds, I mean, present company included, uh, there, there is a lot to cover. There's a lot of text, there's a lot of tradition, there's a lot of history, and I don't say any, I don't say tradition pejoratively. There's right. lots of interpretive uh, conclusions. I mean, a lot of people have looked at these texts before us. And that's something we want to keep in mind. And But we just want you to know that to do this uh, it either means an episode of probably 10 hours or an episode where we just pick off pieces that begin to give us a paradigm and, and give us a, a lens by which we view it. So that's, that's why we're saying begin. Correct. Yeah, this is definitely not going to be an exhaustive uh, study of the Christus Victor. Uh, that, that wouldn't be possible. And uh, only a few people, I think, would listen, um, if any. So... Uh, anyway, here's how uh, Aulin described this view uh, in his landmark book, Christus Victor. Here's what he says. He says, Its central theme is the idea of the atonement as a divine conflict and victory. Christ fights against and triumphs over the evil powers of the world, the tyrants under which mankind is in bondage and suffering, and in him God reconciles the world to himself. Uh, So that's the quote. And like we mentioned last week, the theories within this paradigm are characterized by the fact that the direction of the atonement is Satanward. I'm going to say that again. The direction of the atonement is Satanward. And the fundamental problem being addressed is the oppressive power of the kingdom of darkness over humankind and creation. And in his book, Alan makes the the argument, and I think it's compelling, that most expressions of atonement theology found within the writings of the early church fathers, at least in the first few centuries, would fall under this uh, particular paradigm as well. Now, let's uh, not pass over that too fast. Um, What is the significance of the fact that the, the early church fathers predominantly write about atonement in a way that would fall under this paradigm? 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, earliest doesn't necessarily mean most accurate, uh, but but the fact that the earliest Christian thinkers described atonement in this sort of language with these sorts of concepts and ideas and images should at least get us to, to dig a little deeper. They, they clearly got the idea from somewhere. It's it's a lot of them aren't are are very keen to kind of preserve what they've been given, and so uh, they're they're clearly operating from a, a pre uh, a pre tradition of sorts. Okay, all right, so. Uh, we've taken note of the fact that uh, Christus Victor sort of captures most of the writings of the Church Fathers in regard to the meaning of the death of Jesus, um, and we're suggesting that they probably didn't make that up out of whole cloth. They probably got that idea from somewhere. Um, so with that in mind, let's take a look at the New Testament. Let's do it. All right, I guess that means it's time for my favorite question. Here we go. You knew it was coming. Yeah, it doesn't make it hurt any less. All right, so uh, where should we start? There it is. Well, (laughs) since our whole project so far has been telling people that our theology should start with Jesus, I'm guessing we should start with Jesus. You know what? I, I think that's a great idea. All right, let's see. And so it's an interesting question because, relatively speaking, Jesus didn't actually say all that much about the theological impact of his own death. And I want to be clear, he didn't actually say all that much. There's plenty that we can draw from, but uh, he predicts his death on several occasions, but he doesn't go into a whole lot of detail about the purpose of it. Uh, and that the, the major texts that we have from the word of, from the mouth of Jesus are really influential, and they're from the Synoptic Gospels, specifically Mark chapter 10, verse 45, and Matthew 20, verse 28. And these are called the, the ransom logion, uh, which is just a fancy way of saying the ransom sayings. And these are probably the most, uh, the most, I wouldn't say the most debated uh, sayings or, or material within the Synoptic Gospels. So when it comes to atonement theology and atonement theorizing, uh, these two texts are, are probably central, and they are co- they're operating off a, a common tradition. So, for example, just to give a quick breakdown of this, some people say that there is a, a, a source uh, uh, behind the Gospels called Q, which is um, the idea that all the Q is kind of the common source document or tradition that gives rise to the parallels in Matthew and Mark. They're, they're, you know, or Luke and Mark, or Luke and Ma- Matthew, you know. And you get kind of a sense of, uh, that's why you see so many parallels, is because they're all pulling from the same tradition, the same well of influence and of sayings and of stories. Um, people like me, I, I don't buy the idea of Q. I think oral tradition is sufficient for that, and you don't need kind of a source document or a hypothesis. But um, that's just a way of saying uh, these two verses are very similar to one another and kind of tell us that they're they're operating from the same kind of ransom tradition or ransom sayings. So just to give a little bit of clarity on that. That's good. Um, and before we dive into those sayings, I just want to back up to the point that uh, one of the points you just made, which is that Jesus didn't actually say all that much about the theological impact of his own death. Like you said, we, he said a couple of things, and the way that he lived, we can draw things from it. Um, I just think that's important for us to keep in mind as we talk about this, especially in light of the fact that, uh, as we're going to see for for some um, Christians the who have made elevated the atonement to the level of the gospel itself, right? That um, getting the atonement right is is equivalent to getting the gospel right. The fact that it wasn't the primary topic of Jesus's teaching, I think, encourages us to um, approach this. It's important, yes, but 
Um, is it is it the end all be all of the gospel? Is it is it the central thing that we have to get right? Um, and seeing as it wasn't Jesus's major focus, uh, I think that just you know it ought to lend um, it ought to give us some humility in terms of the way that we approach it and the importance with which we uh, talk about it. If that makes sense. Amen. Um, so anyway, to, to get to those sayings. Um, this is this is how it reads. This comes from Mark. Uh, Jesus said in Mark ten forty five, "For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many." Um, and then in Matthew it reads like this: "Just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life a ransom for many." Uh, really, the only difference between the two sayings is the initial conjunction at the beginning. Other than that, they're identical. Uh, so we know that this is an early source, probably the most well-known source in the Synoptic Gospels and the Jesus tradition, where Jesus uh, gives an explicit explanation uh, of his own self-understanding of his death. Right. And even then, it's not as explicit as we might like, but it is explicit <laughs> in the sense of this is far more than what we've been given before. So this is this is great. We're given something, New Testament nerds like you and I, it's like, oh, we're given toys to play in the sandwich. This is going to be fun, you know. Uh, and, and for the purpose of this episode, I, I think we're, we're going to really focus on uh, the use of the word in English that's translated as ransom. Uh, that's where uh, a lot of uh, confusion, and we might say to be polite to maybe a few of our interlocutors who hear this, um, over uh, over reading maybe is probably the better way of saying it. So yeah, we'll be focusing yeah. on ransom. Yeah, and it's it's kind of a weird word, right? Uh, when when most of us think of ransom, at least I I can say probably in our Western uh, culture, uh, we tend to think of like somebody being kidnapped and demanding a fee to set them free, right? We've probably I mean, I, I think of Die Hard. I mean, that's the greatest <laughs> Christmas movie of all time. That's that's hostages. That's ransom. Right. I mean, right. there we go. John McClane, Jesus. I mean, there's a, you can make a parallel there. I'm just saying. There you go. There you go. Um, it, so this this idea of a, of a ransom, Jesus uh, interpreting his death as a ransom, um, and if we think of that, you know, in the way that we normally think of ransom, it, that raises a lot of questions. Yeah, it really, really does. And we'll talk about some of those theological questions towards the end, but let's let's start with the word itself. In Greek, this word is lutron, lutron. And its most basic definition, if you look at the various lexicons and all of that, the, the sources for uh, giving definitions for Greek words, is the price of release uh, or, or, or price of manumission or something like that. Uh, this uh, word is give us give us a definition of manumission for those of us manumission who uh, liberation or being set free from slavery. Okay. Uh, often, at least in the New Testament kind of Second Temple period, uh, manumission uh, being bought out from slavery or something like that. And so it's an it, you wouldn't say it's primarily an economic word because it's as if a word is economic. You know that's not how words work. But a word that seems to be used over and over within that sort of commercialistic exchange of materials. Um, and there are, of course, and this word is only used uh, in these two times in the entire New Testament, although there are compound words that include the word luchon in it. You know, right. they'll add a, a preposition in front of it uh, and, and kind of combine the words to give us a little bit more meaning, a little bit more flexibility. But uh, the luchon itself only occurs in the Synoptic Gospels. And in literature outside the New Testament, the word, as I mentioned, has a commercial or economic kind of 
denotation or concept to it, specifically as it relates to slavery and exchange. And so uh, let's look at two sources. Uh, the first one is Josephus, and the second is Philo of Alexandria. All right, uh, but before we dive into those guys, uh, let's t- talk for a minute about why these two people are important. Um, jo- Josephus, of course, was a first-century Jewish historian, uh, and he wrote some of our most important first-century documents uh, in regard to the history of um, uh, Jerusalem and, and the Jewish people. Uh, he actually wrote a history of the Jewish people, and he wrote an account of the destruction of Jerusalem, both uh, vital for historical purposes as well as for our understanding of uh, the first century. So that's why Josephus is important. He's um, right around the same time and same area as the uh, the stories we get uh, of Jesus and Paul and all of them. The second person you mentioned, uh, Philo of Alexandria, was a Jewish philosopher who lived also during the time of Jesus and Paul, and he wrote a huge body of philosophical literature. Uh, he was specifically interested in interpreting the law of Moses through the lens of uh, the Greek philosopher Plato. So he has some... Uh, let's just say, really interesting and novel and difficult to understand interpretations of Moses. Um, but both of these guys are vital to our understanding of the first century context of the New Testament, uh, and they both use this word, lutron, pretty regularly. That's exactly right. Uh, and when you're doing New Testament theology and New Testament exegetical work, uh, you don't want to just isolate yourself to the New Testament. You want to look at how other Jewish writers or gr- uh, Greek or Roman writers use this word to see what they might kind of bring to the table in terms of helping you kind of understand the meaning and the complexities of a word. And so, and looking at Philo and Josephus, that's exactly what we're going to do. And so we can see that there's a lot to the word. And with Josephus, he writes in his Antiquities of the Jews, so his History of the Jewish People, in uh, 1228, he describes the enslavement of Jewish people by a foreign power. This power then brought the Jewish slaves and sold them back to the Jewish people. He writes, quote, And let the soldiers receive this redemption money, uh, ta lutra, lutron, with their pay, but the, re- but the rest out of the king's treasury. And in the same chapter, and a few verses later, Josephus again refers to slaves and children being paid a price to be set free, lutron. Uh, So the word in Josephus corresponds kind of the idea of being paid to be set free, most likely from a form of enslavement. And that enslavement can include uh, slavery and war, or it can include even uh, just, this is going to sound terrible, ordinary slavery, which is kind of the economic bedrock of the the Greco-Roman world. Um, And so... There is a sense in which you're be, the, the lutron is the uh, the actual money that's paid to set someone free uh, and all of that. And so it, it gives us kind of a sense in which um, there are agents at work, there are people involved in dynamics, and lutron is kind of at the economic center of what two people or two parties or two nations are doing. So Josephus uses this word uh, to describe slavery and the price paid uh, for those slaves' manumission or, or freedom. Uh, and what makes this even more fascinating is that the slaves that Josephus is referring to within the context here, um, they became slaves because they were prisoners of war. Uh, and you hinted at that. And that was a really common occurrence in the ancient world, right? When one group of people cut conquered another group of people militarily, they would often make the conquered people slaves, Um, And that's the context to which Josephus is writing here. Um, And so if we take that word and and we think about it theologically, it it has some pretty profound implications, wouldn't you say? 
I, I would. Um, I, I, I think it tells us something. And if we kind of take a New Testament perspective, right, we kind of back up a little bit and look at Josephus through that, then we can kind of see that it implies, or at least rather explicitly implies, that uh, that the world is a battlefield or or the world is a, a place of cosmic conflict. And we see that a little bit at the beginning of Mark's gospel, just to give a little bit more context, where Jesus is ushered away by the Spirit. And, in, and you, see, you get more of this story in, in Matthew and Luke, but when Jesus, the temptation narratives, you know, uh, you have these kind of almost apocalyptic themes where the heavens are rent open, uh, Satan is at work tempting Jesus and offering him the kingdoms which are given to him. Uh, which implies a lot right there already of what the New Testament writers tend to think about empires and power. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does say that it seems to suggest that humankind has either ceded power or other words is probably not even aware of their own enslavement. Uh, and they are in subjection to uh, a military conqueror. And hmm. that conqueror, of course, is certainly not God because God what then is the incarnation? The incarnation <laughs> is is our theological D-Day. It is our in God's invasion back into a cosmos marked with hostility and violence. I mean, John 1, 5, you know, the, the light came into the world and the darkness couldn't overpower it. And so I think that gives us some really interesting kind of theological implications that kind of uh, are required. It, it helps us to know more about the first century than it does kind of our own context, but it certainly illuminates our own context as well, I would argue. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so that's what we have from Josephus, this idea of a Lutron as a payment set to, uh, a payment paid to set prisoners free, slaves free. Um, what does Philo say? Does, does he use the word in a way different than this? Does he say anything to contradict this? Or is he sort of in the, the same general line of, of thinking with the, in the way he uses this word? No, I, I think he's, he's, he's very coordinate to Josephus. Um, uh, the prism of enslavement or payment made to set someone free is, is very clearly um, uh, a, a conceptual thing in Philo. Um, he cites Exodus 2.23 uh, in the Septuagint and describes the impoverishment of enslaved Israel in Egypt. Um, so, I mean, we all know what Israel was in Egypt. Um, they were slaves, and that God might deliver them from slavery by removing their burdens, quote, and also provide a price of manumission and an offering of deliverance or salvation. And we get the word soteria from there, or soteros, you know, savior language. Jesus mm-hmm. is called our savior. And this is for the emancipation and liberation of their lives, the lives of Israel. And so, um, right there, you get a sense in which the Exodus narrative for Philo uh, is very much about that price or that lutron being the mechanism that kind of delivers people from slavery. And God is kind of the principal agent kind of operating in that on behalf of an incarcerated Israel, still making intercession on their behalf beside, despite their destitution and enslavement. And so this is, this is very much about the Exodus tradition itself. Um, which has great. Uh, which, if you want to understand more of the Exodus tradition, read African American literature and read African American theologians, because the Exodus uh, tradition, the Exodus narrative, is kind of a bedrock theological um, uh, re- reality for for them. And so, um, and, and not just for them, right? I would say that yeah. they they rightly recognize that that is sort of the bedrock for all of um, biblical theology. The, yes, you know, going back to the Exodus becomes a major theme. Um, in all of Scripture, uh, and it you know becomes sort of the model uh, by which 
Jesus um, pr- projects himself later on. So it's not exactly. just, I would say that they help us understand that that's actually a biblical theme, not just their own theology, right? No, no, I, exactly. That was what I was trying to get at. I think they, they rightly understand the, the nature of the impact of the Exodus tradition for Christian theology. And that's yes. something, because they've had to, in, in essence, go through that, mm-hmm. you know, and are still going through that, sadly, um, as, as our, I say to our great shame, uh, because they, they recognize that, that is infused in their kind of theology, their litur- liturgy, their literature, and that's something where I think we can get a lot out of it. It's just, it's a basic biblical theme that they've um, t- basically shown us time and time again is as bedrock for, for understanding what God is doing in the world. Um, and going back to Philo, when it comes to kind of economic recompense, he uses the verb, uh, it's a negated verb, meaning uh, not, you know, um, to describe how a person is to be paid back. And that includes um, how your uh, repayment for murder and, and for slaves, they can pay a price for their own freedom, lutra, you know. Um, so both Philo and Josephus kind of use the term lutron to refer to kind of the economic price paid to set people free from enslavement. Um, Luke uses the noun lutrusin, or lutrusan, or I should say that, lutrosin, there we go, it's been a, a morning, to describe the <laughs> emancipation of Israel. And blame it on Nolan. Yeah, I bl- blame everything on him. Uh, to describe the emancipation of Israel in chapter 1, verse 68, and chapter 2, verse 38. Um, <clears throat> and the verb, he uses the verbal form for the same reason in Luke 24, 21, and the, lock, and the compound, uh, apolutrosis, uh, which is what I mentioned earlier, that how they'll take certain prepositions and kind of smash it into the word to describe the emancipation of Israel again in chapter 21, verse 28. And so Luke and Mark and Philo and Josephus all kind of use this word to denote emancipation and payment from bondage. And to kind of bring this a little more home, uh, Scott McKnight, who I almost said he's a friend of the show, but he probably should be on the show, uh, in his book, Jesus and His Death, published by Baylor University Press, and I want to say 2005, concludes, quote, the term ransom, lutron, probably means that Jesus's own life was a kind of payment to a hostile power. And he cites uh, Exodus and uh, other Jewish uh, writings on this point. And he says that power is undefined by Mark, but clarified with dazzling confidence and imagination by the early fathers. So bringing up uh, something Thomas rightly pointed out earlier, uh, the early church fathers being closer to it aren't necessarily the most accurate, but they certainly give us a lot of imagination as early interpreters of what that power undefined might be. Right. Um, so let's, let's talk about that for a second. Um, McKnight says here that he thinks the power, uh, the, the power that the recipient that I'm having trouble. I didn't even have a baby. I was going to say, you can't blame this on Nolan. (laughs) Um, the power to whom this Lutron is paid is undefined by Mark. Um, so let's, let's talk about that. Yeah. Uh, what, what do you think about that? Because uh, I've had in conversations with folks on atonement theories and atonement theology, uh, they've asserted that God is the recipient of the Lutron, right? And um, that is perhaps kind of the big question of the classic paradigm and of this atonement text. Um, for example, folks see penal substitution or atonement in this text, but um, having read the literature and having read the text for you, I, I don't see that concept here. And so the question becomes, um, uh, is... is Multifold, but it essentially who is the payer and the recipient of the payment, and that's kind of where uh, that's kind of where the question is. And so, what do you think about that? Like, just uh, like, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's 
I think there are, you know, I think McKnight is right in in these ransom sayings um, in Mark 10 and, and Matthew. Jesus doesn't say, right? He just says as a ransom. He doesn't say as a ransom to. There's no... Um, you know, indirect object. There's no, there's no person to whom, or, or force or power to whom Jesus explicitly says. So, you know, as theologians, as students of the scripture, without that explicit thing, we can only sort of conjecture a little bit. And so there are several options, right? Um, there's God as the, the recipient of the payment. There's Satan as the recipient of the payment and potentially other options. And so we need to think about each option and the theological implications of each. So, you know, as you mentioned, some people think that God is the payment. Uh, God is the recipient of the payment of this ransom. Um, and there are theological implications of that, one of which would be like, what does that say about God, right? Is mm. If that's true, then humans are enslaved to God and Jesus is giving his life to God to set people free from God, what does that say about God? Uh, I think that's something that we have to wrestle with if we believe that Jesus is saying that God is the recipient of the ransom. Right. And I think that really has a lot of theological and exegetical problems because it assumes that the battlefield motif that we see in Mark and also uh, in the Christus Victor model, uh, anything we look at, in that sense at least, uh, we're assuming that God is already at war against human beings. And uh, it, it kind of just, it, it doesn't seem to make contextual sense of the idea of what, um, of what Jesus's mission is to do. If Jesus is to set us free, it's not to set us free from God, because that, that doesn't make any sense within the context. It doesn't make sense within New Testament theology as a whole, or at least I would argue that. And it seems to place God is the one who has enslaved humankind who has oppressed humankind is essentially the one who acts like those evil empires and has basically put people in this position like that. And I, I, I just don't see that in the text and that doesn't seem coordinate at all with Mark and theology as, or at least as I would argue. Right. Or with, you know, we talked about how, how well does this fit with, um, you know, Jesus, does Jesus come and portray uh, God as a God uh, to whom humanity is enslaved, over whom, um, or who demands a God who demands a payment, uh, does it fit with the overall narrative of the Bible? Um, and, and I think on both counts, I would say not very well. I, yeah. I would say that uh, humans is as enslaved to to God, um, and God demanding a payment to set them free just doesn't seem to f- doesn't seem to fit with my reading either of the Gospels or of the, the biblical tradition as a whole. Yeah, and, and you also have the issue as well of um, when, when Paul uses language of slavery, right? We become slaves of God. It, he always says, you were a slave to other things. And unless we're going to say God was the sin, you know, slaves to sin, now slaves of righteousness, uh, I, I don't think we want to make that comparison. That, that just doesn't break, that breaks down theologically in terms of parallelism, right? We're not saying, Paul and Mark and all of them are not saying, uh, God is behind the sin that enslaved you. You know, so instead of the mask of Jesus, which is already a terrible concept, sin is the mask and reveals that God is the secret, you know, kind of operator behind the scene. That doesn't seem to work. And it also seems to imply, and this might be more to the point, and this is, I think, a major Old Testament theme, even with the prophets, uh, is that I don't think God can be bought. Yeah. And and it's one of those things where it feels dumb to say, and I, and I don't mean to imply others are dumb for thinking it, but for me, it almost feels dumb. It's like, I don't think, I think God, giving God's partiality and God's justice, and that justice challenges all of us, 
is the idea that I don't think God is like a petty politician who can be bribed or bought. And this seems to, if we take it as God, then God can be bought because that's what a Lutron is. And I don't think theologically or from at least as a basic character level, I don't think that is who God is revealed in Jesus or within the massive story of the Christian scriptures and the Hebrew Bible. Right. I agree. Um, So the other, another option with this would be that Satan is the recipient of the Lutron. Um, And obviously, if if we come to that conclusion, that has theological implications, right? The implication that somehow humanity is enslaved to Satan, that somehow Satan has um, legitimate power and authority over humankind in creation, and that Satan would accept, you know, Jesus uh, as a payment. And so there are a lot of people I know that that reject this uh, view on that grounds alone because they think that it just um, automatically ascribes too much power uh, to Satan. Um, so so what do you think about that? Um, I mean, I, I think the New Testament authors <clears throat> had a very supernatural worldview, a worldview that while I, I don't know how much I share because of I'm, you know, I'm very modern and all that sort of stuff. I mean, sure. I affirm devils or demons and angels and stuff like that. But, you know, it's different when you're sitting in a room with air conditioning. <laughs> and, and, you know, right. it, it, it may not just land home for you. But for me, it's, it's one of those things where I, I, think, I think the concern is fair, but I don't think the concern takes seriously enough how devastating and oppressive and terrifying the supernatural world is. And I think the early Jewish writers had a very robust and, um, I, I wouldn't say reverent, that's not the right word, but a very, um, they took, they took the supernatural, the evil in the supernatural world very seriously. And yes, it's one of those things where when Satan says he, you know, in Luke's gospel, right. And he, you know, all these kingdoms I've, I have, it's, it's hard to suggest that he has the, a legitimate claim to them, but you could say in terms of an insurrectionist, he believes he has a legitimate claim to them. Which, I mean, I'm not willing to take the word on the devil on on his claim to authority. But the point is more a matter of um, if if Satan is the one who's doing all of this, then we have to reclaim as Christians a supernatural worldview that takes seriously not just the physical, we might say physical evil in the world, but also structural and supernatural evil. Because I don't think the biblical world or the biblical writers separate the two. Mm-hmm. Um, and so right. for me, I I have no problem with Satan being given that much power because that's what an insurrectionist does. The insurrectionist is always taking what they believe to be in, uh, uh, power in that sense. Um, and I, and so yeah, I don't have a problem with Satan. I don't see Satan in the text. I'm willing. I, I'm not saying. Uh, and I think Mark. I think you and uh, McKnight are right. I don't see, for lack of a better word, um, it's. I think it's purposefully undefined. And so that leaves us interpretive room to kind of figure out there maybe there are multiple options or you know multiple shades of meaning to that. But as far as Satan being there, um, I think by implication you can argue that, and I think it's certainly fair, and it certainly makes sense within New Testament theology. I'm just not sure. Just because Mark is quiet about it means I I try to be very reverent and not trying to nail down <laughs> nail down what the author doesn't say. <laughs> Nailed down is an interesting. Um, yeah, interesting probably. Yeah, that's probably not the best word for it. <laughs> as we're talking about the meaning of the death of Jesus. Um, 
So, right. And, and there are potentially other options, right, to whom this, this ransom is paid. But I think the question we need to ask ourselves is how can we let the text speak before we assume an answer that the text does not provide, hmm. right? Um, the fact that Jesus doesn't explicitly name um, somebody drives us then to look at what the rest of Scripture, uh, especially the New Testament, is going to say about the death of Jesus and um, these kinds of things. Um, but as you mentioned, you know th- this was the view of the early church fathers that the world was enslaved um, and humans were enslaved to Satan, and they got that from somewhere. Um, and so we need to we need to take a closer look at that and see are there other clues, other places in Scripture, and specifically the New Testament, uh, where we can sort of get a glimpse at what's going on there. Yeah, yeah, um, I-, I think that's really helpful, and it, it basically it allows Scripture to. It doesn't mean we can't bring our own modern questions to the text, but it does mean also that we should try to allow the text to dictate the types and kinds of questions that we ask. Um, it may challenge us to ask better questions. Um, and so if we think God is the recipient of the ransom payment uh, and we come to this text, uh, I think if we're just critical about it and self-reflective, I don't think we can make that claim. I don't think that just makes sense of, of context and of reception history, that is church history, and also just within the character of God is revealed in Jesus and all of those sorts of things. And so uh, I think allowing the text to dictate the questions we ask is kind of a, a helpful pedagogical and kind of dialogical kind of hermeneutical device that gets us kind of beyond the, 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 the simple citation of a text as if, ha, look, this is this text is a Pokemon card and, um, <laughs> right. you know, 10, 10 plus five crit damage, you know, and stuff like that. It's like, no, it's we're... we're Scripture interprets scripture, and I mean that in the actual sense of the word. If there is an ambiguity, then perhaps somewhere else a writer might help us clarify. And that is part of what we'll be doing throughout this entire series on atonement. If if the, if it's not as explicit as we might like, maybe it's more explicit somewhere else, and maybe we allow that to kind of have it say too. Indeed. And we'll take a closer look at that, uh, specifically this idea of uh, the devil and demons and evil powers. So our next episode is going to be uh, a little a little devil heavy, a little demon heavy. If you're into that thing, uh, you might be excited. If you're not, uh, maybe it's time for Halloween to... though, right? Hey, there you go. That's, a, that's, that's very true. We'll have a spooky uh, episode 24. Ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> um, Bring your candy. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, if uh, if you like what we're doing here and you want to support us, you can find us on Patreon. Um, we're up to 12 synergistic supporters right now on Patreon, and we're just so blessed by uh, all of your generosity. Um, this is uh, certainly one of the best ways that you can support what we're doing. For just a few bucks a month, you can help us get the word out about uh, what we call the most man-centered theological podcast on the internet. Uh, and we really just want to express a deep thanks to our patrons who have stayed faithful, faithful to us during this time. We know things have been really weird that we've sort of been on radio silence as I've been away and we've been dealing with COVID and new baby. Um, and those of you who have stuck with us with your support through all of this, we're just so grateful um, for that support. Uh, and our goal now that things are calming down, I'm back is to get um, more regular episodes out. And we were just playing around uh, before we started recording this one about how we might be able to start incorporating some video, um, expanding some of our capabilities. Um, so we're definitely, uh, now that I'm back and that uh, Nolan's a little bit older and, and all that, we definitely want to jump back into doing this a little bit more regularly. Um, all that to say, thank you to those who have been supporting us. And if you want to jump in and become a supporter, you can do that on our Patreon page. 
Amen. And well, thank you for listening to the Synergist Podcast, the most man-centered, gospel-centered, in-Christ podcast, this side of a certain furloughed podcast that shouldn't be named. Uh, all of this, of course, by God's divine, foreordained, deterministic, gospel-centered, TGC-approved <laughs> decree. Cheers to all, and thank you again for joining us today. Thank you.